Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. How did Adam's sin impact humanity, past, present, and future? Well, today, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand the real depth and nature of original sin. So let's begin in our text from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, as we continue this series called The Power of the Gospel. I'm reading Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. You know, every person, Christian and non-Christian, has a sin problem. How severe is that problem? Well, according to Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Death reigns over the human race because sin reigns over the human race. But as believers, something has happened. In our conversion, it is no longer Adam's sin that counts, but Christ's righteousness. On today's program, we have a lot to talk about, and what we have to talk about is intended to give hope as we grow to become more like Christ and less like Adam. We have come to one of the most difficult and rich theological passages in the Bible. It deals with Adam's sin, or what we often call original sin. And what we will study today, just three verses, will require that we do some thinking and that we come to some conclusions that will transform our thinking from this moment on. I'm going to try to keep the matter before us as simple as we can, but not too simple lest we miss the profound value of what's being said. You know, some Bible teachers view Romans 5 to 8 as a section in which the major theme in this unit is hope. And there are reasons for seeing hope as the primary theme. For one, hope pervades this section. Everything from Romans 5.1, in which we were promised that once we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and as a result, rejoice in hope. To chapter 8, verse 18, where we're promised that the future glory that will soon be revealed to every child of God is not worth comparing to any of the sufferings we are presently undergoing. Future hope gets mentioned again and again. Now, while it's true that hope is everywhere present in this section, yet at the same time, I contend that it is not hope that is the major theme, but sanctification or the growth into holiness of every child of God. I contend that we really can't grow spiritually as believers until our hearts are flooded not by uncertainty or self-condemnation or the feeling that God is condemning us or a sense of insecurity about the outcome of our lives. Christian growth can only flourish and grow when it is planted in the rich soil of hope, in the assurance that God is for us and not holding us either in condemnation or waiting to see how we do before he approves. Rather, when anyone is born again or is justified by faith, they should know that nothing can separate us from the love of God and that the outcome of our struggle against sin and the flesh and the devil and the rebellious world we live in, while the outcome of this battle has never been in doubt, we have hope. God's smile is upon all who believe in Christ, who have been justified by faith. We're reconciled with God. We're not enemies of God. The long war between us and God is over. God has won as he has defeated our resistance and we have been found victorious in him. Now, please notice that as we come to verse 12 in Romans 5, it begins with the word, therefore. 
A number of Bible scholars will point out that the word can also be translated as, in order to accomplish this. That would mean that in verses 1 to 11, which speaks about our new status of having peace with God and the confidence that we now have in our salvation, that in order to accomplish this, we have been transferred from ownership of Adam to ownership of Christ. Let's see if we can follow Paul's train of thought. Again to verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man. Let's stop there. The one man Paul has in mind is Adam. It is through Adam that sin entered the world. Now, we could spend a great deal of time here in trying to show how sin did not enter the world through Eve or through one woman. Adam was given leadership, and through his failure of spiritual leadership and in his complicit rebellion with Eve, sin entered into the world. Now, just when we think this is fairly clear, we need to slow down and ask a few basic questions. How did sin enter the world through Adam? Why is it that sin didn't just enter into Adam? Why into the world? A number of answers to this question have been attempted. One possible answer is that sin entered the world through Adam's example. After Adam rebelled, his children also rebelled following the example of their father. Now, in this line of thinking, all children would be born in innocence, morally neutral, and only become sinners because of the corrupt world they're living in. If they had a good world, they would do well. But this won't do for a number of reasons, and the first is that this view does not square with the rest of the Bible. For instance, David in Psalm 51 verse 5 claims that he was conceived in sin and therefore was born in sin and continued to sin. He was not morally neutral. Furthermore, the book of 1 Corinthians, which was written just prior to Paul's writing of Romans, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, Paul writes, For as by a man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, Paul thinks there is a parallel between Adam and Christ. We know that we are not made righteous by following Christ's example, but we are made righteous by what Christ has done on our behalf, and since that is so, it must therefore follow that we are not made sinners by Adam's example, but we are made sinners by what Adam did on our behalf. Or let's fast forward to what Paul says in Romans 5.19. Just a few lines down from what we are presently studying, there we see Paul saying, For as by one man's disobedience, the many are made sinners. We, the children of Adam, were made into sinners, not by Adam's example, but by Adam's sin. And in one previous verse, that is verse 18, Paul writes, One trespass led to the condemnation of all men. In other words, Adam sinned, and in consequence, you and I were condemned. So without wanting to get too far ahead, let's understand that sin came into the world through one man, not through many people's bad choices, but through one man. This means that all of us share with Adam a solidarity in his guilt. Now, before we move on, let's be crystal clear. Sometimes when we speak about original sin, we speak about an inherited propensity to sin, but not about sharing in Adam's guilt. Let me explain. The Bible makes it plain that we are born with a sin nature. Now, however we imagine this, many of us rightly know we have inherited this from Adam. The Bible makes it clear that when Adam sinned, he died. 
and his death is felt on three levels. Yes, it begins the long process of dying physically, so that there must have been some kind of transformation in his cell biology so that a body that would have endured forever begins the process of death. But he also dies on a number of other levels. He dies spiritually, meaning that, according to the text in Genesis, when the Lord entered into the garden in the cool of the day, Adam instinctively ran from God and hid. Something in his spiritual makeup was transformed so that he was dead towards intimacy with God. But he also died judicially. God now confronts Adam, not as his friend, but as one whom he curses and condemns. Now, death on these three levels are a part and parcel of the human experience. We might think of it this way, just like an inherited eye color that we get from our parents, so also we have inherited death from Adam. Well, fair enough. That is what the Bible teaches, but that's not what this passage in Romans teaches. It teaches something different. Notice again in verse 18, the trespass of Adam brought condemnation to all men. Let me put it another way. So we don't miss it. Adam sinned and you were condemned. Or when Adam sinned, he sinned as your representative. He not only represented himself, he represented the entire human race. Now, a great many people, once they grasp that, will then say, well, but that's not fair. How can it be fair that Adam's sin is charged against me before I was born and that the sentence for Adam's sin, death, is also charged to my account even though I had done nothing, either good or bad? Now, the first thing we must settle on is that this is precisely what the Bible teaches. And the second thing, we must wrestle with this. How can this be just? And when we come back, I will answer that question. And then following Paul's reasoning, I'm going to try to explain how it is not only true, but that this is the best news that you have ever heard. How much do we really know about the topic of original sin? Well, in this introduction, we've begun to grasp how important it is to get this right. Many have questioned what the Bible teaches about this doctrine, But we must recover a proper understanding of how all of humanity has been condemned through Adam's sin. We are sinners not because we sin, but because it is actually part of our nature. As a result of what Adam did, we are condemned, we are found guilty of his sin. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld explains how original sin reveals what humanity truly needs. Well, we hope you've been challenged so far as we've listened to our current series on Romans chapter 5 to 8 with Dr. Neufeld. Over the next five weeks, we'll be digging deep into Paul's teaching on the power of the gospel, which is a continuation of a previous series we looked at called The Heart of the Gospel from Romans 1 to 4. Here we learn the secret to living a godly life in Christ. It's not within ourselves, but rather in the gospel itself. The gospel provides all the power we need to defeat sin, grow in holiness, and to live lives that are worthy of His name. We're offering this great five-week series on CD for just $35, and that includes shipping and handling. To order your copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I want you to imagine the following scenario. 
Imagine you're playing on a football team. It's a playoff game and your and your season is on the line. Your team is behind by four points and there are only five seconds left on the clock. But you have the ball on your opponent's two-yard line. You have one play left. You'll either win the game or lose it. Your quarterback gets the ball. He hands it off to the running back who punches the ball into the end zone. You're ecstatic. The crowd is cheering. You've just won the game, but then a groan from the crowd. There's a yellow flag on the field. On the opposite side from where your running back ran, one of your linemen is charged with holding. A 10-yard penalty, and instead of glory, it now looks like you're going to lose the game. But you complain, this is not fair. We did not all sin. Only the one lineman sinned. Let him be penalized. Make him stand 10 yards back and let the full weight of his error be felt by making an example of him. But not the rest of us. We have not sinned as he did. And yet the referee explains, all of you wear the same uniform and you form a collective, a solidarity. And in this, the penalty committed by one is reckoned to all. And that's precisely what Paul teaches both here and in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. Sin came into the world through one man, and along with the sin of the one man came the penalty of sin, which is death. Now notice the last line of Romans 5, verse 12. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it seems clear from reading this passage that that Paul is now referring to the individual sins that each person has personally committed. This kind of personal sinning has been going on from the beginning, from the time of Adam to the present. Now, here's the key. When Paul says, because all sinned, it's clear from the context that he means all sinned in Adam. That not only do we share in Adam's condemnation, we also share in Adam's attitude. Now, just when you think that Paul would complete this line of thought by showing us how it is that we, who once shared solidarity with Adam, now have a new head of a new race who share in solidarity to Christ's righteous life, instead of completing that thought, which Paul will complete later, he actually breaks off that thought and says, as it were, hold on to that idea that you share in Adam's condemnation and in Adam's attitude and go with me as I deal with one tangential issue. Now look at it this way. Imagine you're telling your kids that they need to make sure that after they make a mess, they need to clean up in the kitchen. And then before you complete the thought of what a clean kitchen actually looks like, you tell them how to separate out garbage from what they put in the recycle bin. You've broken your line of thought by filling in something that also needs to be said. Now, in a sense, that's what Paul is doing. He's making the point that all humanity is condemned in Adam and also condemned in acting like Adam and sinning just like Adam when Paul has to stop and tell us something about sin. Look again at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Here's Paul's point. In one sense, we might say that all of humanity is not like Adam at all. God gave Adam a command or a law. You may eat from all the trees of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. That was the command or the law that he violated. And yet for thousands of years from Adam to the giving of the law or the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, there was no law. So how can one be guilty of sinning like Adam when they had no command to violate? Here's an example. A number of years ago, my son and I were in Germany together. We had rented a powerful BMW, and he was driving. We were on the Autobahn, and which some sections have what is called Unbestimmte Geschwindigkeit. 
That simply means that the lawmakers of Germany had not made a determination as to what is a safe speed that should be held on the Autobahn. And so on that day, with with both hands gripping the wheel of his luxury BMW and without a sideways glance at his old man, with every fiber of his being engaged and a smile on his face, he was going well over 200 kilometers an hour. He was violating no law. He was not sinning since no determination had been made as to what constitutes safety on the German highway. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that's what accounted for the grin on my son's face that day. And by the way, I don't work for the German tourism industry, but we had more fun as a father and son that day than we should have been allowed to have. Now, getting back to the text, is this the same with a violating of the Ten Commandments? If there is no law against adultery or murdering and theft, against idolatry and taking the Lord's name in vain, are we only condemned for breaking a law? Let's see what Paul will say. Verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. Now, if we're unlike Adam in that we have never heard a definitive command, yet death and sin reigns over us as well, how so? Well, years ago, Chuck Swindoll gave what I thought was an excellent answer. He said that as a young boy, he had a paper route and used to ride his bicycle across the lawn of the house on the corner of the street and make his pathway shorter. His rides began to wear a thin path across that lawn. One day, the owner put out a sign. It said, keep off the grass, no bikes. But young Chuck just ignored the sign and rode straight across the lawn right into the waiting arms of the owner of the house. That day, Chuck said he had an enlightening encounter as the man shared his deepest feelings openly with Chuck. Well, no doubt. But here's what the law does. The law names and defines our behavior. Before the law came, we called it cheating, and we said it really didn't matter. And then came the law, and it called it adultery. Before the law, we said we're helping ourselves to something, but the law came and called it theft. We once called it freedom to worship as we felt guided by our own heart, but the law called it idolatry. So what the law did was it defined our behavior and put it under a microscope. But the behavior was always the same. And here's the similarity between ourselves and Adam. Adam may have heard a direct command from God and violated it, but we, like Adam, had the same bent to want to be our own gods and create our own morality that suited ourselves and our needs rather than to submit to and walk humbly before a God who alone is worthy. So even before Adam to Moses, sin was taken into account. Now, having come this far, what does Paul want to communicate? I think the answer is quite clear. All Christians who have been justified by faith will want in the end, as Paul will teach us in Romans 6.12, to not let sin reign in the mortal body. But before we learn how to defeat sin, we will need to understand sin. And if we are to understand sin, we're going to have to get beyond our individualistic definitions of it. There is a solidarity of sin, a a kind of solidarity that begins with Adam as the head of the human race, and we as children are in him and therefore are counted as sinners in him and share in his destiny, which is death. Therefore, if the battle over sin is to be broken, 
It will not be broken as each individual struggles valiantly against sin on his own or on her own. What is needed is a new head of a new humanity. The bad news? That we are counted sinful in Adam and that we rebel against God in Adam. But this is also the good news. For we cannot escape our solidarity unless a new man, a new Adam, should arise. And before we're done, I hope that we will understand that even as our salvation was not accomplished by us, so also our growth into the image of Christ and our final being presented before God without spot or wrinkle, this also is accomplished not by ourselves, but by the strong head of our new humanity. And that's why we take hope. For even as we were dead in Adam, so we are alive in Christ. Please tune in again tomorrow as we're going to take this thought and apply it to our lives. John, why is it good news that Adam's sin is counted against us? Well, it's because Christ is the second Adam. And if Adam's sin is counted on our behalf, then Christ's righteousness is also counted on our behalf. So what Christ did, like Adam is credited to me. So I think it's the best news possible because it forms the basis for our relationship with Christ and our hope in eternity at the same time. The doctrine of original sin may not be popular today, but it needs to be understood. We cannot truly begin to comprehend the power and the love of Christ through the gospel without acknowledging the depth and impact of our sin, both individually and collectively. But the amazing thing is this, it leads us to one unforgettable conclusion. As Dr. Neufeld said, what we need is a new head of a new humanity. The only hope for us is Christ. I hope that today's study has made a positive impact on your understanding of your hope in Christ, perhaps enlightened, encouraged, or convicted you of what God has revealed to us in His Word. Tomorrow, in our final message of week one, We'll get a picture of how Christ has come to make us alive again. So keep listening to our series, The Power of the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The heart of what we do as a ministry is to show people the depth, truth, power, and relevance of God's Word using every opportunity and resource at our disposal. Of course, we broadcast the program on many stations and outlets across Canada, but we're just as dedicated to providing quality multimedia resources that are not only biblically based, but practical and helpful for everyday living. That's why we published both Bible Matters and Life Matters. But coming soon in February, we'll be introducing a brand new, larger publication combining both that we believe will do an even greater job of enriching and growing the reader in their walk with Jesus. This new resource is a great step forward and will include sound biblical teaching as well as practical life application. It will teach, inspire, and encourage, as well as offer feature articles and updates from Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and a long list of excellent authors and pastors. There will be content for most every age group and always a special article from In Doubt focusing on the very specific concerns of young adults walking in faith. Stay tuned as well as the new name is revealed. If you don't receive one of our publications, you can subscribe for free 
and receive the very first issue by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or emailing us at info at backtothebible.ca.